You're listening to Trek FM. There was a little bar in Mill Valley where all the Starfleet trainees used to go. The 602 Club. You know it. <laughs> I was there more times than I can remember. Welcome back to Trek FM's local watering hole where the hosts from the network drop by and we have friends over and just talk about all things geeky. Uh, make sure you've ordered your drink from Ruby and just grab your chair. I'm your host, Matthew Rushing. Today we have joining us from our great podcast, Earl Gray, Darren Moser. It's good to have you back here in the 602. How are you doing? I'm doing good. Uh, you know, Ruby has my regular spot all set out. Uh, it's nice to be back again, and I'm really looking forward to uh, today's conversation. Fantastic. And of course, we've got back with us Norm. Hello, everybody out there in 602 listening land. How are you all? Man, doing great. Ruby brought me this br- brand new uh, whiskey I'm trying right now, this this mm. Japanese whiskey. It's fantastic. Uh, I think uh, maybe Christopher Jones might know about it, but really good and enjoying that. And uh, I'm pretty excited to be here with you guys because I remember when I first saw the the previews for the movie that we're going to talk about tonight, Interstellar. And, you know, it was just kind of that... Um, it was kind of black and white and then they went to all these old space reels and everything and then it was just like interstellar from christopher nolan and i was like okay well i'm hooked because i'm a huge nolan fan and i'm gonna see pretty much anything that he does just to see if it's any good but the movie finally came out just a couple weeks ago and we're finally getting a chance to to sit around and talk about it I, i got married and We've had other things going on, so I'm glad we're going to get a chance to do this. I wanted to just kind of talk, because this is the movie I think we could end up seeing a bunch of times and talking about for a very long time, but just first impressions for you guys is, is you were you know sitting in the seat, kind of watching the movie, let it kind of wash over you, and then you're just leaving the theater. What were your first impressions, Norm? It's a hugely immersive experience. I mean, when uh, it it harkens back to some of the movies that I liked when I was younger, uh, where the theater just and the lights went down. I walked in with pretty much zero expectation, aside from knowing that it was a Nolan movie. And in, in there's a certain level of quality that you expect, a certain level of writing quality, a certain level of acting quality, direction, what have you. But what I loved about Interstellar uh, was the fact that it it presented a lot of huge ideas. It presented a lot of possibility, and it presented a lot of a lot of thought-provoking conversation afterwards, which, in my opinion, not a lot of movies do anymore. When you leave the theater, it keeps the conversation going because, for better or worse, if people liked it or if they didn't like it, it gave you a lot to think about, and it gave you a lot to talk to other people about to help kind of springboard that conversation to other things that we love such as star trek or such as anything in science fiction because uh, we love talking about big grand um, robust uh, otherworldly ideas and i think that's the one thing that he really did come across as presenting in this movie what about you darren yeah i didn't catch it in the most immersive possible screening like a 70 millimeter imax yeah it just was at the local cinema, you know, out here where I live. But even then, 
uh, it, it's a three-hour movie. It's a slow burn, uh, but it never f- lagged. I never felt like I I was, okay, where are we going to get to the next action part? Or when are we going to get to the next good part? Because they needed to spend so much time establishing these characters because you got a huge payoff later on as they're going through these emotional trials and physical trials. So the pace of it, I mean, you know, not since Lord of the Rings is there really this chunk of a movie that you're sitting down for. I mean, that's another immersive experience, but I really enjoyed it. It, And I'll mention several times in this discussion, a lot of the threads that it pulls from 2001, a space odyssey, one of my, my favorite films. And I think you can't say a greater compliment to this film in, uh, in referencing it to, to that masterpiece. And I think just one of the things I'm with you guys, I, I ended up getting to see it in, in IMAX uh, and it wasn't one of the. It wasn't a seventy millimeter show. It was one of the smaller IMAX theaters. Unfortunately, uh, apparently Washington is just replete with with not great theaters, which makes me miss Dallas. It's one of the very few things I miss about that place, because we had awesome theaters there. But seeing it like that, I mean, just alone, the, it is immersive because so much of the movie Nolan will use the entire you know IMAX screen. To, to bring you in and then the 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 expansiveness of, of space and and the bigness of it you know in Star Trek I always feel like space is so small but in this movie I felt like space was the big thing the ships and the people were just finite compared to this you know infinite galactic you know universe that's out there I I think that spectacle is just something that's really been lost in film. No one is just not afraid in this movie to give you awestruck wonder. Like, just to make your jaw hit the floor at what you're seeing on screen. But at the same time, you know, movies can't be all images. What he's doing as well is he's planning all these ideas, I feel like, in your mind so that as you come out of the movie, like you said, Norm, you immediately need to start talking about it. You've got to start kind of processing and figuring it out and... and there's there's a lot of layers to to what's going on and and like you said there and you've got plenty of 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 movies that are this movie is sitting on the shoulders of and so like 2001 a space odyssey and then so many other sci-fi movies as well as just kind of movie making in general you know nolan's using all of these different things so for me coming out and just my first impression was this is why we go to the movies this is what it means to to make a movie and that's in some ways been lost i think you know as much as i love superhero movies or or whatever they're great but this kind of revolutionary style of filmmaking of taking old motifs and crafting a whole new story is something i just we haven't seen a lot of recently because it's all remakes and and action films and you know, romantic comedies, and it's all kind of fit into the same thing. And this just felt like the days when I'm sure you would have gone to the theater and it was Ben Hur, you know, or it it's just big and and in your face, and it all of that. And I I don't know, it's been a long time since I've experienced I think a film quite like this. Well, I think that uh, just to interject here for a second. I don't think that a lot of people had the same level of expectation going into this movie because it is 
it was so open as to what it was. I think the previews did a really good job of keeping things a little bit on the ambiguous side. There were teasers almost, Some, less you know, trailers. Exactly. Yeah, and that and that was nice in of itself because again, we're hearkening back to you know some of these classic movies that didn't have the type of trailer structure format that usually spoils films nowadays. So when you watched, I only saw one trailer for Interstellar, and again, it was just kind of a, a nice sweeping grand gesture of presenting that this movie is going to be coming out, you know, in a few months. And I said, well, that's fine. Christopher Nolan has the he has the wherewithal as a director. When he puts his name to something, people, again, are at a certain expectation level going in. I mean, I, he's, his track record speaks for itself. But Interstellar itself, it the ideas are so big that it's almost as if the entire movie couldn't encompass probably the grandness of his storytelling. And that's where, again, I like having that conversation that continues after the film is over it doesn't mean for me that the film didn't convey a a complete story it's just that there's so much more story that can be told but it's also fun to be able to do that in a conversation as speculation after the film has you know after the film is over and, and everyone goes their separate ways it's not even like inception where you really were left with okay oh what does the end mean you know that this was a little bit more cut and dry and which was kind of strange to see for for Nolan usually he likes to leave us with those kind of endings and and I was glad that in this movie in a lot of ways it it kind of has a really happy resolution in the end and I was surprised to see that as well because I don't really expect that from Nolan and so maybe this is a a good time to kind of transition and get into those ideas of like plot and themes of the film and Honestly, the plot is kind of simple. It, it's that our planet is dying. And it's what I thought was most interesting is it was from a blight that had, had grown, like a, a parasite that was growing, and it was continually killing crops. And that was creating starvation among humans. And so I, what I thought was most interesting is usually it's like global warming or something, but this seemed to be something so much more natural in in the film like it it was a natural progression of our planet kind of aging it it wasn't necessarily that human beings had had a a terrible impact on the planet it was something came up that we we couldn't really change because it was a natural process of our our planet's growth and and aging so because of that we need a new place to live and nasa has gone underground because people don't understand really what the real problem is is that the planet is going to die and if we don't find a new place to live somehow then we're gone and a wormhole has opened up there right around the rings basically of saturn we have no idea why or how but it leads us to another galaxy and allows us to be able to explore those other that other galaxy for new planets and we've sent off other ships 13 if i'm correct we had 13 original ships there's 12 original ships 12 colonies of man and exactly it's a it's a little bit like uh, battlestar galactic at that point and or the 12 tribes of israel 12 tribes of israel or the 12 disciples um Mm -hmm. and 12 hands uh, on a clock 
Exactly. Uh, you know, there's so many different motifs that go along with this number 12. It comes down to our character, Cooper, to be the pilot of the vessel to go visit those planets and see which ones are actually worth us colonizing for real. And then the rest of the movie plays out with that. And so it's it's a pretty basic plot, and yet there's so much going on here. And I really like how... You know, like we even mentioned in his trailers, it it's such a complex movie, but it's told in the simplest of brushstrokes, and that's what makes it work. I mean, you could throw Technobabble out your ear in this movie. I mean, you easily could have given it the Star Trek treatment and just have people spouting things on and on and on. You know, not that it's bad in Star Trek, but just you don't want to watch three hours of it. But the way he tells the story is yes it's the the earth is dying but it, it's it's ambiguous enough that you absorb that point and then you move on to the next like you don't spend your time figuring out the why because the why doesn't matter it, we need to leave and we need you know a new home and that's just part of the mastery of just good filmmaking well, and then there's one of the things that they do in the movie as well is they, they just visually show you the, how the planet is dying. And, and so creating that visual motif of, you know, the sandstorms and everything like that, you're immediately, especially in America, brought back to this idea of the Dust Bowl, yeah. and how terrible like that was. Like a Ken Burns this documentary. Is, exactly. Mm-hmm. That's kind of what this feels like because the movie actually starts out like that. It's a documentary playing of these people talking about how bad the earth was at that point so it very much feels like this is just our history it's it's as if we're watching a ken burns film from the future i think it was a really smart idea uh from the art directors and from the cinematographer's point of view to make the technology of the film still relatable and believable plus or minus you know or actually plus probably about 15, maybe 20 years. Yeah, that's what it felt like, about 20 years. So there wasn't this giant jump in technology where the audience was like, oh, you know, this is way into the future. So as a, as someone who's observing the film, I didn't do this to the earth. You know, if this isn't my generation. This is generation maybe 50 years from now or 60 years from now, so I don't feel as guilty. But being that it felt so familiar... It almost as if, it's as if it could happen again in 20 years. I'd be, you know, in my 60s by then around John Lithgow's character's age. And I would feel responsible for what happened because for some odd reason it is in my lifetime. So it keeps me anchored to the film. But it also, it's not so far fetched. So there isn't this separation of this, you know, Star Trek universe that is encroaching on the film from a techno babbly point of view. I think they uh, really struck a really nice balance between the reality of the situation versus the theoretical design of what we needed to use to get into you know the the space exploration of the wormhole that was i think a lot of that stuff was just absolute sheer genius as a graphic designer myself when i walk into a film one of the things i pay attention to first is the setting the art decoration the set decoration how things are being kind of like translated in a three-dimensional universe to tell the story and if it's one thing that really sold me on this film in terms of its tangibility was how much realism they brought to the setting, especially on the farmhouse with the dust 
and how it covered the plates, how they had the ritual of doing that so that they wouldn't get dust on their food as they set the tables. I mean, all that stuff, as small of the details as they are, were brilliant master strokes in telling that small of a character driven story. It, the world felt lived in. It felt like, mm. you know, yes, even in the future, people are still going to need to drive to work, to go to school, to put food on the table. And those little details just made the, everything so believable. It, it felt like, yeah, the, these people had been living in a world with the blight for a couple of decades. And this, these things were norm now. That It wasn't all over the news. It just was. Mm-hmm. Well, and it, and the way that they talk about it, especially John Lithgow's character, the, the grandfather, talks about the idea that, you know, so many years ago, you know, there were six billion people on the planet and they all wanted everything now you know it it does give you just enough to tweak you and say there's a there's a responsibility we have to the planet that we live on we you know for for me as as a person of belief it's it's um it's the stewardship that i've been given to take care of of the earth you know that that's my responsibility i need to take care of it well that means what I think of and and what maybe we all think of as having it all isn't necessarily the best for us in the first place, you know? Um, and to, to really think about our place in the world and, and, and what that means, you know, I think, I think that's a huge theme of this movie is just kind of running through the whole thing as, is what does it really mean to, to exist and to exist well? And does that mean having more stuff or does that mean having, you know better relationships and i think you know this movie kind of moves us toward thinking that life is is really measured in the relationships we have with others and i think that's a really neat thing to see throughout the film is is how these people who are just trying to survive and 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 are trying to make a life for themselves figure out what it means to to live because you know cooper has that whole discussion with with his father-in-law you know, that life was never good enough for him here. He didn't get to use his gifts and all of those kind of things. And, you know, is it okay just to survive? Is that really what life is is is, is like or is, is there something more? And that's a hu- that's the human question. You know, is there more? And the, the very foundation of this movie is, is, I think, asking that question. I don't know if they, I don't think they really actually ever get to the answer of that at all. They don't even try to answer it. They just kind of throw that question out there of, of what does life mean? Because on a whole, they, they don't, they don't really transcend to, to many spiritual planes in this movie, except for using spiritual motifs. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, the, but they don't actually push that boundary very much. So it is huge what they're talking about here in, in the film and, and just going from you know seeing the trailers which are, like you you guys said I didn't really know what this was going to be to getting the movie I, I loved that experience it's been one of the few times I've been in a movie recently where I'm like I don't know what's going to happen on the whole thing because I've already seen the best parts in the trailer <laughs> yeah but you knew you wanted to see it it was a, it was it was exactly. just enough to hook and that's all it needs to do you don't want it to, to spoil, you know, you don't want, you don't need a Qui-Gon Jinn funeral march printed on the back of your CD 
to to make a dated reference. <laughs> That's true. Oh man, for all those people, uh, Darren's talking about the Phantom Menace um, from '99. So some of you may not have even been born when that came out, and what we're talking about. <laughs> Well, um, what were some of the other things that you guys noticed just uh, talking about kind of plot and themes of the film as as you watched through? And, and I will say none of us have seen this movie more than once. We neither None of us have been able to get to the theater again to see it. So we are only going off one viewing. So if we forget some things, that's where you guys can hit us up on the Babel Conference and we can talk more about the film. The theme that I love the best throughout this film, which it's it's very difficult to do and they pull it off so well, is time. It is very hard to tell a science fiction story that's basically using relative time like like you would actually experience in the presence of a black hole. Like they they got it pretty much right. So the all the aspects where Cooper is is going down uh to uh, Miller planet, which is is too close to the black hole, and thus, uh, I think it was like a seven to one, twenty one to one ratio. It was a this huge ratio of time that would. It was seven to one from the endurance, twenty to one from Earth, I believe it was. So yeah, or maybe it was the verse. I think mm. I think it was. Yeah, it's it's seven to one from the endurance to the planet. So every every hour they were there, they were gone seven years. Uh, you know, so okay, so not not quite a yeah. seven to one, like because that's an hour to a year, but still a huge, a huge uh, exponential difference. And so Cooper's mm-hmm. just booking it because he knows, you know, if this mission is probably going to take an hour, you know, that's that's seven years we've just lost. And uh, because of the complications, you know, it takes much much longer than that. And that again it just it deals up it lives up to its name it's interstellar it's like i mean in star trek we see all these aspects of oh we have this vast federation over many worlds and it's like honestly if we were to colonize just our own solar system or just all the solar systems around us you i don't know how you would have a central government because everyone would be operating years decades difference because nothing's relative or at least the communication isn't fast enough. So I loved how they used you know, the messages from earth and how they were, you know, buffered and, and cued and delayed uh, to, you know, like I said, the going to Miller's planet um, to even just the, the effects of going through the, the wormhole, which is a beautiful spectacle, you know, as you're, as you're kind of circling around a, a, a mirrored sphere and just, that was, uh, I mean, it had a lot to, to live up for. You had Beyond the Infinite in 2001. You have Journey Through the Stargate and Stargate. You have lots of times that have presented that kind of spectacle, but it did it. It was beautiful. It was very special. What was interesting, too, a friend of mine brought up a book that we both read. It's one of my favorite books of all time called The Sparrow by Mary Doria Russell. And it's a it's about a story about a a priest and a group of of friends of his that that travel to another planet because the SETI project here on Earth has found music coming from that place. So they travel there, and because of the relative time difference throughout that book and then the book uh, Children of God, its sequel, 
she's able to play out this story of about 150 years that the main character is able to live. And yet, you know, obviously you wouldn't normally be able to do that. And her message in the book was was really interesting of, of like being able to see the consequences of our actions and, and how that works out because we can't normally see that because we have such a finite amount of time here on Earth that usually what we do have is not enough to kind of see those kind of things play out. And things that we may have thought were terrible could actually grow into something that was good over time, but we, we, we won't know that because we'll be dead. And so by giving that character that ability and and cooper in this movie gets that ability of kind of being able to see the the way that time is malleable especially once you can control it ruining the end of the movie you know once you can learn to intersect yourself through time just as you would through space or anything else you know uh, apparently uh, once we get advanced enough uh, moving through time is is pretty much just like picking up the phone it's really not that difficult um, because we can control gravity so I thought that was just such an interesting thing to see that kind of play out and whereas in the book it's more of a it's kind of a more of a spiritual thing because you're you're able to see the time the way that God sees time you know you're outside of it and it's all relative to you it's it's all the same time I thought that they that was interesting because they actually play with that in this movie as well of almost being able to see time like God sees time when he's in that fifth dimension and they've dumbed it down for him but he can see that room at, at all time you know throughout his daughter's life I thought that was really cool uh, it gave it a, a whole new idea I think of just you could think about like Darren as you were talking about the idea of time from a whole new perspective just because of this movie and, and just how crazy it is to think that in, of what kind of a strange construct it is that we ourselves live in and see very, very linearly yeah the aspect that helped me visualize or, or wrap my head around the tesseract at the end where he's you know existing in a fourth dimension is uh was was carl sagan's you know flatland story i mean as he's you know he describes if you're a two-dimensional creature you know you can't you can you can visualize the third dimension but you can't you know you exist in it but you can't travel to it and the it's really, it's, I mean, you're talking, you know, super level physics here, but it, from my understanding in the movie, it was like a fifth dimensional kind of creature created a fourth dimensional space that a third dimensional object could exist in. Cause you can exist one dimension up, but you can't, but you can't perceive it. Like perceiving it is like, so as we're watching, you know, like you said, infinite directions of infinite time, um, I mean, it's how do you represent a fourth dimensional space? I mean, it's 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 very difficult, but yet I think they did a great job of exploring that. As he's climbing through the different space and it, and being anchored to a specific place helped, because I mean, I mean, we were just anchored to one room in all of space and time. Let alone if you were not anchored and now you're trying to view everything. I mean, that would just that that's too much. Do you get how like? small we are too like when you when you think about that like how infinitely unimpressible we are like we 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 are nothing compared to all of what you just said like that that's that's what we're 
that's what we're up against. Like that, that's the, the insanity of believing that, like, I think to me, just like that, that we're it. Like, like that, that there's nothing beyond, like that doesn't make any sense to me to think that what you just said, that there isn't something bigger than that. Like, because I would, I don't know. It just, that just blows my mind. And that was the thing I love about this movie because it, it just makes you think yeah. and you'll keep thinking and the you'll, best keep, thinking make and you you'll think. keep thinking exactly norm i i feel like darren and i are just really monopolizing conversation over here we, we've, we've had a little bit too much of the Ruby's beverages norm, yeah and, uh, exactly i'm reaching okay. out to you buddy <laughs> <laughs> yeah uh, i'm i'm yep there we go we've we've just broken the fourth dimension <laughs> and we've gotten back to norm <laughs> well you know um Again, those are large concepts that you're talking about, you know, and this is what you came away with. And I think a lot of people did. Uh, But the one thing that I that I think that Nolan balanced really deftly in this movie was as far as he goes to to explore these large concepts of time and space and and how we fit in this infinite canvas that is the universe. He makes it very known to the audience that the anchor that he keeps going back to is the relationship between a man and his child. That is as important in explaining the process of the universe and how things universally function in terms of this overall cohesion of infinite space, infinite time, infinite construction of how temporal mechanics work. The ability for Cooper to transcend that in the Tesseract in order to communicate with his daughter at any te- at any temporal level because he needs to connect back with her as a father. That in and of itself really interjects something so incredibly human about the storytelling because without that, everything becomes theoretical, pen-on-paper, temporal mechanics and temporal physics in a textbook. You have to have that human gravitas reign over the storytelling so that we as the audience feel the desperation and the dire consequence that happens to Cooper if, in fact, he doesn't, on Miller's planet, get off the planet in time. He knows what happens. That's plainly obvious when he gets back to the Endurance and then he meets their doctor companion who has aged. Everyone, I think, forgot that. And then when they got back to the ship, they were like, well, why is his friend older? And then we're like, oh, my God. The temporal relationship, Einstein's theory of relativity is actually in play. That's mind-blowing because you really don't see that in Star Wars through hyperspace or in Star Trek through warp. You don't really see the consequence of that if that economy, if you will, is squandered. You know, Because time in this movie is currency. And the more that you use it or spend it unwisely, the greater the situation becomes with greater consequences towards the end. So that's what, when I was watching the movie, a lot of people that I talked to about it really didn't see it at that level. Not because, not because they weren't paying attention. I think it's just because science fiction has conditioned people in such a way where they want to see space fight scenes or lightsaber scenes or high action scenes 
which is my one small gripe in this movie. But they want to see that type of science fiction as opposed to um, an Isaac Asimovian type of um, idea factory where you're generating just as many ideas as you're watching it as the movie is presenting itself to you um, at the same time. So, again, I would have to watch this movie multiple times to figure out and kind of put into some type of perspective what I'm trying to get out of it. But maybe that's the great thing about the movie. Maybe there isn't a construct to put it in a container to box it up in and label and say, this is, and it's great to have those movies because those movies, like I said, you, you both said it. Those are the ones that allow you to continue the conversation and to spur new ideas. That's what science fiction really is all about is to explore that unknown and to share uh, the type of perspective that you that you usually don't get a chance to talk about in modern science fiction cinema. Well, and what's so interesting, you're talking about the idea of what's at the center of the movie is the relationship between a father and, and his daughter. And that at the center then is humanity. Like it, the whole movie is, is, is so very much in the line of Asimov or, or Carl Sagan. Like humanity is at the center of this film and it is its own savior as well. Like this is the humanistic gospel with with the religious undertones of of um, Cooper being a, a Jesus figure, and and yet at the same time saying no, it, it's not that we need a savior. We are our own savior, and and that's in the in the end of the movie we are it, because we're the beings, we're the them, we're the they that they keep talking about. We're just very, very advanced. Basically, I always uh, thought of, of who we became was kind of like the prophets from Deep Space Nine. We are outside of space and time, and, and apparently we can control it. We can create wormholes. Um, I don't know. I mean, maybe uh, Christopher Nolan's been watching a lot of Deep Space Nine, and it was like, <laughs> I'm, I'm now picturing the emissary idea. inside that Tesseract. Yeah, like, there you go. Like, like yeah. going, but you also exist here. And he's like, no, take exactly. me away. <laughs> it is the Cooper. Oh gosh! But but it, it really is. This whole movie is a, a I think a love story towards the idea that uh, it is humanity and its faith in science that will save us in the end. That's 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 our that's our great hope. Um, which is a really, uh, in the end, it's 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 Nolan's most human film. It's it's all about the what it what a humanistic view of of the world looks like and what they hope we will be. Uh, and I thought that was a it's just a really interesting thing to see, just kind of played out on film for us. And and Nolan does it so deftly. He does it so well. And the relationships that he builds in this film, but especially between Murph and Cooper, like you said, Darren, you know, you're a father now and, and you can feel the weight of that relationship. I don't have any kids. I just have some nieces. I have a niece and a couple of nephews, but I can feel the weight of, of that. You know, I've got, you know, tears in my eyes as those scenes play out, especially oh, yeah. as he gets back and he's watching his kids grow up, you know, and like, and, and, she isn't sending him messages. It's torment. But what's interesting is she's the one who's living her dad's life. He's the one who isn't. He's the he's the one rejecting his dad's life. 
Um, and I thought that was what was really interesting is angry as she is at her father, she lives in his footsteps because she still has this close connection with who he is and they, they see the world the same way. In some ways, of the two kids, she's his his only convert to his belief system. And, and it's, it's a really beautiful thing because they have this amazing um, connection that goes beyond. And, and as Anne Hathaway's character will say, it's love. Love is the only other thing other than gravity that transcends space and time. Uh, it's the only thing that isn't relative um, in, in that way that you can love somebody who's dead or you can love somebody who isn't even alive yet. I mean, mothers who love their children that they haven't even met yet, but that are growing inside of them. It's a you know an incredible thing. Love is almost like another element out there that is is something that is it's almost tangible as if you could touch it, you know, like the way that Picard describes the nexus, you know, it's, it's, it's like joy. Like you could almost grab it and, and, and everything. I just, I love how the movie starts with this relationship and everything blooms out of that. It's, it's really cool. Well, the, the, it's interesting that you bring up that connection with Coop and Murph because it's, and and his son, I don't remember his son's name offhand, but they are almost both sides. Well, they are actually both sides of who Cooper is. There is a realist and a dreamer. You know, his son is the realist. He ends up taking over the farm, making sure that the farm functions because that's what you have to do. And that's what Cooper did as a father on a day-to-day basis. You know, he had to do the things that put food on the table that the normal constructs of human life, waking up, providing for your family, making sure your family's safe. On the other hand, because Cooper was so good at that and he instilled that in Murph, he needed Murph to be the dreamer. He needed Murph to be the other side of the equation where in order for people to live a normal life and have the constructs of a normal life and provide for the family that the human race continues. So it was Murph's charge to continue that dreaming to the point where she could affect and try in some way reconcile the fact that her father went out to do better for mankind and she could parallel in some way his devotion to that that quest to be able to give humanity the chance that it needs as her father is doing it through the relative timey wimey kind of space stretching that's going on in in the story because i think that she has become smart enough when she ages to understand what relatively means and what that meant when her father left to what age she was when she started working for nasa she understands that so somewhere along the line it was her hope that when Cooper was in the Tesseract that he would be able to reach out where he was and find some way to close that circuit with her, which ultimately becomes kind of like the raison d'etre of the movie, if you will. It's that's where that's where the wibbly wobbliness of the Tesseract allowed us to see that sliver of both of their existences at the same time. That's a really neat I mean, imagine the Tesseract as being just this long tube of time. And we're just seeing one infinitesimal sliver of 
a section of space that also expands infinitely in another direction. When you start thinking about those type of temporal mechanics, that's where this movie succeeds on a huge level because these types of theories you don't really see anymore in science fiction storytelling, especially when it comes to something that actually is based on scientific, true scientific theory uh, that is being explored right now. Yeah, I mean, uh, Norm, you were just talking and you mentioned the, the great quote from Doctor Who and the idea that, you know, most people assume that time is a linear progression between, you know, cause and effect when more it's like a big ball of wibbly wobbly timey wimey stuff and if you want an explanation of the the time in interstellar that's it's exactly what it's like you know when you start to think about relativity and how it all works and the the loop that this movie kind of ends in that time is circular we have to advance far enough to be able to achieve the state that allows us to be able to save ourselves in the future. And it has to go around in the circle like that or, or else the storyline doesn't work. Yeah. It doesn't make, it doesn't matter. Uh, it's, it's a great story. So, um, it, it, I, I love though that what you said that the characters are, are like a two sides of their father. And I think that's a really good observation because you're right yeah. in, in a lot of Tom ways. Tom and Murphy, yeah. Yeah, it, Tom, it's okay. it's very much um, that case of, of them both latching on to sides of him that they're more comfortable with. And, and, and in a lot of ways, I think that's what a lot of kids end up doing. They tend to take one side or the other of their parents, you know, and, and I can look back and see the things I got from my parents, the good and the bad, you know, from each of them. So it's it's pretty interesting how that plays out. I think this is probably going to be a great time to kind of just jump into some of the characters, uh, you know, from Matthew McConaughey's Cooper, um, you know, to, you know, you have, uh, I think, Mackenzie Foy playing the young Murph is brilliant. That That girl needs to be nominated for an Oscar. She was, she blew me away. Um, and then to the way that Ellen Burson and then Jessica Chastain have to match that performance, I think played out so well. They, they do a great job of, of, of doing that. In fact, they do a great job of matching Tom with, uh, then, you know, he's, he's played as older as Casey Affleck, you know, it's just fantastic. So uh, just talk about some of your favorite characters, some of the things that jumped out at you, and and maybe some of the surprises of, of people that we saw in the movie. Um, okay, so I really thought that that Matthew McConaughey as Cooper was just solid. I mean, he was fantastic. Um, there's there's a certain because we started the story off in a very midwestern dust bowl type of environment. That is something that just plays so naturally to his his normal range as a just a human being you know being i believe he's a texan so there's a nice kind of swagger about him there's a nice shade of confidence about him but there's also this real earthiness and believability to to what he does since they didn't go the whole scientific techno babble route with him what he does as a pilot informs the audience so much more convincingly than trying to speak it out. He's just, he just does. We believe that he was 
this character, the, you know, this farmer, this father, this, you know, this patriarch of his family. And then when he needs to be, there are certain instances where he was described as being this great, you know, pilot at one point in time. And he, he does that without too much exposition where you don't really need that. So you're allowed to focus on his performance. I thought John Lithgow was fantastic. He, he brings such a great, just a great sense of reality to the whole equation because he is, I believe, Cooper's conscience where Tom was his, Tom was his kind of his, an extension of his reality or, or being kind of like this functionary in life. Murph was his soul, but I believe that John Lithgow's uh, character as his father-in-law was his conscience and it allowed him to think about what he needed to do. It gave him that sounding board. I believe that all of the characters that they used in NASA, the Anne Hathaway's character, um, Michael Caine's character, were all very serviceable, if you will, because they're great. I can't, I can't say that they're not great because they're great actors, actress. It's a stellar but cast. One, in yeah, Interstellar. It is a stellar <laughs> cast. But um, the one, there were two instances of of casting where I thought, for me, and I usually don't get a little. Um, a little uh, take issue with any type of, of casting when it comes to racial casting. But I really do wish in all of the casting choices, especially with some of the uh, special um, surprise characters, that there was an Asian American or a Middle Eastern American maybe involved in the casting because it just felt very standard if you will i don't i don't want to i don't want to throw a word out there that's going to upset our audience but it felt very kind of stereotypical i would have liked to have seen maybe a john cho or um you know the kid who played uh in the life of pi those are really good actors yeah and this is supposed to be nasa this is supposed to be this nice international conglomerate of minds topher grace was great in his role but maybe there was an opportunity there for you know, something else to be tried. I don't know. But Maybe if they had showed us a that, closer yeah. view of the 12 Lazarus astronauts, we would have seen a little more diversity. And I wish they had given us a, a better shot of who those 12s were. I'm sure there were actual pictures in those frames. but That would have been a great idea. Just to show, again, being the Star Trek fans that we are and, and, and the Star Trek fans that uh, are, are used to seeing this type of kind of like this, not even just racial diversity, but kind of like a... Um, you know, just galactic diversity and all of the, you know, officers in the Federation. I, at, at this stage in the game, I think they would have tried to have drawn from as many great minds as they possibly could have in order to save the planet. And I don't think that it's just relegated to um, Caucasian and African-American scientists, you know, so, but that's, that's my opinion on it. Well, Norm, I, I do want to ask you that question because you do have a, a Filipino and, and Chinese descent, would you have been okay with then, you know, having Dr. Mann, uh, who has a last name that you might already expect to be somebody of Asian descent, when you just hear it, you, that's what I thought. Uh, and then it turned out to be Matt Damon. Would it have been okay if his character turned out to be, you know, the, the, that, say, Asian descent character, but he also turns out to be the bad guy? Would you have been okay with that? I think if it was written in a way where we understand his motivations a little bit more than I think that they did with the man character. Cause he's really the only character I take a little bit of exception with in the story. I think that would have been okay, but you know, there are certainly more opportunities to be able to um, ethnically diversify 
parts of the cast. I mean, in NASA itself, in the ready room, if you will, you know, there was a, a round table of three or four people and it was Michael Caine, Anne Hathaway, um, the doctor that went along with them. And I think there was one other person. I mean, there would have been a really good opportunity at the table, you know, symbolically at the table, all of the races mm-hmm. of the earth kind of, you know, there with their input, even just walking around the the space lab or the scientific area itself. I didn't pay attention, you know, to the background characters so specifically, but I think too for Grace, there was an opportunity there for maybe some diversity. Again, I'm not one to preach that in everything. It's just that because Interstellar was dealing with such a huge consequential issue that they would have tried to explore all their options. And I don't believe that it was just those two options racially. Yeah, I, I'm, I agree with you. I, you know, that's one of those things I always think is interesting at the choice. And we talked about before we got started, the fact who knew that Matt Damon was in this movie before you saw it? And nobody raised their hands uh, as we're looking at each other because none of us knew that he was going to be here. And I think his character was one of those, you know, the moment that he woke up, didn't knew this guy was bad news. The way that Damon plays him just tips you off that something isn't quite right with him. And I really liked that because it made sense for a guy who had been alone for so long to have lost the ability to have the social cues to be able to lie really well you know you you that takes practice as a as a human being and when you haven't been around humans or for a very long time and you've been talking to yourself and a robot for a while you you, you're gonna be lost in that and the way and obviously even just the way that um him and, and Cooper are kind of seen as the two prototypical men in the movie they they stand for man and the way that they deal with things and that man is thinking, Dr. Man is thinking very much about the entire species, the entire race of humanity and its surviving. And then you have the other side of man where we think very locally of just about the, the people that we love and them surviving and, and seeing them again and those two going head to head. I thought that was a really interesting thing to see because neither of those things are necessarily good in in a lot of ways. Like there, there's no black or white. It's very just gray. Those two things because taken to the extreme, they they become something that we would consider bad, you know. Um, and and it's like there needed to be somewhere in the middle, and he just was kind of placing the the black hat and the white hat at that point against each other. And letting them go at each other. I thought it was kind of an interesting thing to see in the movie. Well, yeah, with Dr. Mann, I mean, like you said, he was thinking about the species as a whole, but yet he did it in a very selfish way because he's like, I want society to survive, but I want to be there too. Uh, I mean, the line he gives where he's like, I knew I couldn't do it. You know, he knew all he had to do was hit that button to say this planet isn't good but he's basically condemning himself to death and he, he could do it, which I get as a, as a very human decision. But like you said, in its extreme, that became the root of his evil. Well, and that was, which is interesting too, because they, they talked about the ideas, is there evil out there in the universe or is it just what we bring with us? And that does play out in the film that 
that at least it is, we can take that evil with us and, and how our choices are what make us evil. Uh, I mean, not necessarily that we're inherently evil. That's, that's kind of an interesting oh, philosophical idea they're kind of pulling from there. And so that's, that's another one of those things is you dig away at the layers of this movie. We just keep finding more layers to talk about. And it's just incredible. So, Oh, I was, I just thought that the choice of the name man was really interesting because this was one of the things that the conversations that my girlfriend and I were, when we were walking to the car, I thought that it was, it was really interesting, but it could also be played very heavy handedly because then I started coming up with examples of the duality of man, the frail, the, the frailty of man, the weakness of man. I never really saw kind of like the strength of man or the hope for mankind or anything like that. It was it was always towards more kind of like the um, man has already been compromised. So I know that's probably where Nolan was going with it when he chose that name. But the one sticking point in this movie, and I'm probably on a very small island about this, I just don't think that Matt Damon was good enough of an actor to to get that point across. I think he's a great actor in other things. I love him in the Bourne movies. I loved him in Goodwill Hunting. He has a certain niche that he can fill. But when they opened up the body bag and brought him out of cryo, that's where the movie just burst for me. I was on board with everything. I mean, they were selling me hook, line, and sinker, and I was eating it all up right up until that point. Mm. Because for, and you know, I'm, it's, that's just, you know, that's how I reacted to that particular scene. I would have almost liked to have seen an unknown or a relatively unknown actor in that part because then I'm thinking more about him as man as opposed to, oh man, Matt Damon, really? Right. And that's all I really it's thought like, about. It's like, is it Harrison that Ford? A, yeah. Is it Tom Cruise? It's like, that's Tom Cruise playing, you know, Dr. Man. That's not Dr. Man. Right. And because you've invested believing in these characters that are so well established within two hours of the movie you know you know that you've transcended that matthew mcconaughey is cooper and hathaway is you know this doctor and all these characters are who they're supposed to be i know that it's unfair to kind of like introduce a new character three quarters of the way of a movie and then you're supposed to invest yourself in them that's a really difficult narrative to pull off but because of what he stood for when when they revealed who that actor was, for me, that was just like, that's the best option that we have for portraying this character who is so pinnacally important for the, for basically kind of like how, how the story is going to diverge from this point. What, it, did, it just didn't really pay off for me. Well, and I, I think that on the other side of that, I he chose Matt Damon. My guess is, is because you usually see Matt Damon is always the good guy. And so he wanted you to be able to trust him the moment you ca- he came out of cryo sleep, like that you had a face that you recognize and you thought, because like you said, there's not a lot of time to develop him fully because we're, you know, two thirds of the way through the movie and we don't have enough time to really get into his character so that was my thought was, oh, he's chosen Matt Damon because he thinks I'm going to like him automatically. This is not going to go well for everybody because of that. You know, I I'd kind of that's exactly what I thought of in the movie. And so it didn't pull me out. I just realized 
this isn't going to be somebody that we can trust. So the moment he turned on, you know, McConaughey, I wasn't surprised at all. I was just waiting for it to happen. No, we we all raised our hands earlier that who who saw mm-hmm. that he was going to be the bad guy like moments after he came out of cryo, and we all raised exactly. our hands. Exactly. But um, so I I thought that was one of those things where yeah I could see what you're saying, Norm. If a character like that can pull you out in the wrong way and it kind of hurt that part of the movie and uh, it, it worked enough for me you know I, I, I enjoy Matt Damon on a whole and I thought that he played the I thought that he played the desperation and the selfishness and the that kind of insanity that comes from being alone too long pretty well and, and that, that that came off the I, for me at least, the way I think Nolan was wanting it to, where he's been away too long and it's eroded his sense of morality. So he's going to do the wrong thing for the wrong reason and he doesn't care. He's he's come to that point in his life where he doesn't care about making the wrong choice. He's just going to do it because he, he's going to do it because that's what it means for him to, to survive. And so... Um, and I think that's a really interesting thing. Well, guys, I wanted to talk about the the robots that we had in the movie because that was one of the things I think that we all talked about right before we started recording is when we saw the trailers for the film, you saw those those things. We had I don't really have any idea what they were. I was just like, that is weird. What the heck is that? Turned out to be one of the coolest things. I've ever seen, especially ro- uh, maybe maybe my top robot from a film. I just I loved it. What did you guys think? Well, just like you said, you know, it's a it, it starts off as a what a walking suitcase. Like, is that a monolith that's been through a cheese grater? But no, it ends up being the former marine surplus robots of Tars, Case, and Kip from uh, from Interstellar and. My goodness. Again, just like you said, Matthew, I, I saw him for a second in the trailer. I'm like, oh, that looks kind of dumb. I don't, this isn't going to work. And then probably about the same amount of time seeing him in the actual film. And it was my favorite robot by far. Uh, the As soon as when he's when Case is sitting with Cooper and the first time you actually see the robots and he kind of like props himself up like he's getting angry, like he's going to like jump over the table like a buddy cop movie and attack Cooper that's when they had immediately infused personality into these robots Um, I mean my favorite thing that I like about them is that they talk like humans like they don't have a synthesized voice they because I can believe that this pseudo you know 20 40 year future that yeah our our AI is going to sound like people but they're people that know they're robots and the the bits where you know let's I can adjust my my humor threshold or my honesty threshold like that was brilliant because they're just they're acting like smart robots uh, but yeah it, it tars stole the show for me i mean i think i've heard many people say that they would watch a tar spinoff uh his own movie series uh everything i i I want more tars and case because they were they were great characters and and they were extra members of the crew in every sense of the way uh and they were practical i mean they were practical props that were on set 
you know, that added to them a lot. I mean, obviously they were CG in, in certain aspects to, you know, cartwheel across water world, but uh, yeah, I just can't say enough good things about, about the robots. They were amazing. You know, what was really refreshing about the robots um, when you first saw them is when you, when you saw the design, you, especially for we fans of science fiction and fantasy, we originally, we, we hearken to design elements of robots or androids that we've seen previously, which are very humanoid. Data, C-3PO, in Aliens you had Ash and Bishop and David in Prometheus. They all have been designed to represent almost a seamless transition between technology and man. But these robots are strictly utilitarian. They fit with the context of the technology of the time. And when you see them perform their duties in the tech, in the level of technology that they were designed to, you know that we aren't that far forward into the future because they aren't these type of android or man-like facsimiles of of what we believe should be the kind of like companion robot they are for all intents and purposes swiss army knives they can pull out the resource that they need for the job specifically at that time to be able to protect you know one of asimov's first what three laws to protect man to protect the crew while also doing their functions of studying analyzing and recording to me also infused with the personalities that they gave them i agree with you darren they became they are the crew you know and when you lost one you felt as if you lost one of the main characters because they performed an essential function of the narrative and doing the doing that in a way where it wasn't traditionally star this or star that or something from um, very traditional science fiction art direction and art design was a hugely impressive and bold move on the art department for Interstellar. I thought they were absolutely genius. What was so cool too is that in this world, you know, these used to be used by the military and then they've been repurposed now to be used by NASA. And the other thing that they do is that they don't anthropomorphize the way that they look. They are robots. They look like robots, like strange, you know, robotic things. And the only thing that gives them a kind of human feel is that programming that they have so that as they interact with humans, they can interact and they it. it there's never a question of whether it's sentient. It knows it's a robot. It's programmed to be like this, and you can change its settings. And the 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 robots themselves have no problems being robots. They like it. They and they're willing to do whatever it takes to complete the mission commanded to do. They will do. And I I think that was something that was so refreshing. You know, I'm so used to, especially with Star Trek, we always have to start calling our 
our uh, artificial constructs sentient. We have to always have to start worrying about that. And here it was just more of a practical thing. We built a robot to be a robot to do things that we can't do. That that's what it's here for. You know, um, we get attached to them because that's what we do as humans. That we get attached to. Um, basically inanimate objects you know uh, my phone has a name uh, but that doesn't mean that you know like I don't expect it to still be a phone and do phone things you know so and it might have Siri on it but it it's not sentient you know I'm not worried about that so these were great characters and and for me I think obviously my probably top favorite robot in a movie I just really like has to be a model kit yeah soon. Oh, gosh. some type of yeah. action figure why was yeah, that I not need... on day one i mean seriously you exactly. walk out of the theater and there's a display and they can, and, and they In are case. like 50 yeah. bucks each and we all buy one because it doesn't matter yeah <laughs> and it would look great on my desk next to my tardis and the prometheus you know so um the the starship not that terrible 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 alien movie which i will <laughs> i was tell you i was guys about to happened. i was yeah. about to remark but i'm glad to clarify and that my heart yeah. skipped a beat for a second <laughs> um real quick darren i know you kind of wanted to just touch on and, and i think we should definitely get to is the design of the spacecrafts in this movie and we touched on earlier the fact that this movie feels very much like something that we would extrapolate in our future you know star trek does a great job of extrapolating what we have now and then thinking beyond this thinks beyond you know about 50 to maybe 75 years it gives us a real world feel as if nasa in 20 to 30 years could start building these things and of course because it's nolan you build as much of it as you can and you put people in real sets, and, and it feels real. Um, what did you guys think about, you know, the Endurance and the Rangers and the Lazarus Pods and, and the things that we saw in the film? Oh, just that, Matt. I mean, they, they are a progression of where we are going. And it, and it helped solve, again, a lot of the movie problems. Like, how do you do space? How do you film in space when you can't afford to have everything floating around will you build an actual spacecraft that would actually rotate and have actual gravity and you know what you buy it uh and so this like just start with the endurance i mean a great beautiful design just the, with the symmetry again pulling some elements from 2001 uh, and you just w- I want to watch uh, you know the movie again just to watch the endurance more to to pick out little bits and I didn't even notice the landing craft until I like saw it like for the 20th time in a poster. I'm like, Oh, that's where they are, you know, but, uh, it's, it's beautifully balanced. Uh, the docking sequence. Oh my gosh. Like the tension in that sequence was, uh, was incredible. And it, it reminded me a lot of, uh, the, when Kirk, is going to visit the uh, enterprise on the motion picture and he kind of pulls back and docks. It was the Rangers, you know, docked in a very similar way uh, in that collar fashion. But, but the, the endurance was great. The, the Rangers, you know, it looked like the, the, uh, like a mini shuttle and, you know, acted, I didn't quite get the articulation of the inside that kind of like pivoted around to help with the G forces. I guess I felt kind of like I was in the core, but uh, but I won't hold that against it. Um, but yeah, but it, it definitely felt you know like our direction of science fiction, even all the way into the far future where you have the O'Neill cylinders. 
So that, you know, comes from the 70s, you know, when you were trying to envision what would colonies in space look like. And that's what they basically have with Cooper Station. So they always keep one foot firmly planted in reality, which makes it so believable. Uh, and, and, you know, I definitely feel we could reach that type of technology by in, in 20 years time. Not not a doubt. Yeah, I agree with uh, the using the hard science and just enough of a degree to be able to make the technology believable because we are extrapolating from what we know now to what's being projected in Interstellar. Um, but I love the fact that they used rotation in terms of building you know, gravitational pull because one of my all-time favorite shows is Babylon 5, and one of the things that they've always stressed on Babylon 5 was different rotating rings of gravity in the station so that different species can um they they can be you know live in in and be in the right habitation for their species and when they started the process of that on the endurance there was a part of my heart that just smiled because thank you they were actually looking at real time space travel in the future in the not so distant future, but in the future where they are trying to figure out the right aspects of habitation for long distance journeys and how that gravity would affect just keeping the, the structure of human anatomy intact, you know, for that type of a journey. So that was really smart. And it also gave a lot of credence to what was happening at the end when the ships were spiraling out of control and how Cooper needed to use his piloting expertise in order to maintain the same rotation as the now damaged endurance in order to salvage that part of the operation. I mean, that's that's part of the backdrop of how serious they were taking trying to tell not only this huge broad stroke of broad strokes of storytelling, but with the anchor of just enough real technology to make everything believable still and give you that sense of urgency when technology was starting to fail because now you believe in it you've you've believed in it in the the beginning you're going to believe that it might fail in the end and it gives you that sense of tension where they they need to get these ships back on track in order to continue and survive this mission so when you believe in the props when you believe that these inanimate objects or these fabrications of future tech become real, that really helps sell the rest of the story. That that has to be solid in order for you to stay within the experience of this particular fantasy. I I think that one of the neat things ab- about the, the ships and everything that they did with the outer space is that I just bought it. It it felt real enough so that I could check my brain out of that and focus on what they were trying to get me to focus on, which was the characters, the dialogue, the the grandeur of space, everything like that. It, it felt real enough so I'm not having to pay attention to how things work. And I can just focus on the things that are really important. So, of course, when I go back to watch this movie again, I will start to pay more attention to things like the spaceships and all of that because I've seen the movie before and I can begin to kind of dissect it and watch it each time for different things. But what I loved about the first time I saw this, and obviously the only time I've seen it so far, is that it doesn't pull me out. It just... 
It helps convey the story enough so that I completely buy it. They've designed it in a way that makes sense to, to my brain and what I know of NASA already now so that I, I just, I get it, what they're doing. I, I get it and I can move forward with the rest of the story. And I think that's fantastic design element. You know, design shouldn't be something that pops out at you. Norm, we talked about this on another 602 uh, where all of the elements of Hydra, it pulls you out mm-hmm. because it's plastered Hydra here. You know, you've got your big wall cling here. You've got all, everybody's got their pins. You know, it pulls you out because it's designed that it, 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 it points itself out. Whereas this design was so smooth and, and so well done, it fades into the background and just becomes an, a part of the world that makes sense. And I, I just really, I love that. It's kind of one of the things that made Star Trek so great. It was when you got to the bridge for the first time on the Enterprise, the original Enterprise, everything for some reason just kind of made sense, you know? And the same thing with what we see here in the movie. And so hats off to the design team, the production team, uh, and everyone involved with with creating just the spacecraft, the, the robots, and all that kind of stuff because I just buy it, hook, line, and sinker. It took me a second. I remember when I was watching when they were starting to uh, basically inhabit the uh, the Ranger module, where or it might have been in the Endurance module, where TARS kind of slipped in as a console. Oh, yes, yeah. yes. Yeah, in the Ranger, like it's he has this little slot for him right there that mm-hmm. he plugs into. Yeah, like R2-D2. Exactly. And it was so, because of the way they were designed, when they when TARS took his position as part of the console, they used him as a data entry pad. So they were actually interfacing with him, not just as a robot, but also as a part of the ship that now became a mobile capsule that could either be part of the ship for ship use or as part of the landing party for, you know, exploration use. I thought that was brilliant. I can't say enough good stuff about the robots. They were... <laughs> They, I mean, they really were that at that that level, that star level. They really broke out. Yeah, the, just the design work in this film was so well thought out. And and I I I don't think that Nolan I've ever seen him do anything that wasn't well designed. I think when you look at uh, the designs in all of the Dark Knight films, specifically thinking through the thought process of okay, if Batman is a real person, what do these things look like? How does the how do these things work? You know, when you saw the the um, tumbler or the bat pod or any of those things, mm-hmm. it all just it felt like it made sense from the first time that you saw it. it they, there's a way that they design things or uh, even the way that that design played over then into man of steel with kryptonian technology and everything that they did there again it just it had a way of making you feel like it all made sense without it having to be necessarily in your face all the time or or take away from what they're really trying to get across is the action of film and that's just really smart another thing that can do that for a film and can really be an asset like say imagine star wars without john williams score you know, oh, right. it, it, it's horrible. You know, uh, just honestly think about any movie that John Williams has scored without his score. And you just kind of want to be like, I don't want to live in this planet anymore. Um, but Hans Zimmer's score here, I think, 
is another character in the movie. The way that mm-hmm. he is, for me, this is the way he specifically uses the organ gives a religious quality to the film through music of this kind of transcendent feeling because it makes you feel as if you're in the grandest cathedral of them all, which you are, which is space. Mm-hmm. It's infinite. It's vast. It's the final frontier. And when we think about uh, music playing out in the in the quiet of space where you hear nothing, uh, the, this music, I think, does a great job of binding that all together, giving you the, the emotion that you need. I mean, there are moments I'm just... I was on the edge of my seat in this movie, especially that docking scene with the music and the, the sound design and everything working together. I'm just like, are they going to make it? Are they going to make it? You know, it's just, it was fantastic. What did you think about it, Norm? Music has the ability to hugely inform huge emotional crescendos, surges, or really small character moments in a film. I mean, John Williams does it like no other, but there are you know, there, there are your John Williams, there are your James Horners, your Hans Zimmers of the world that are just at this level of being able to create an entire narrative just on the music alone. Because there are some times where they have to be able to inform the emotional content of a scene without any dialogue, sometimes without any characters on the screen. You just need to feel the emotion that's being built up through the orchestration and how that orchestration informs your emotional barometer of that scene. Hans Zimmer does that better than most. And I've loved his work all the way back to when he used to work with Michael Mann on Miami Vice. And that was just a TV show back in the 1980s. I mean, he has, he takes his musicality in a different way than your John Williams type scores because, again, like this movie, his scores are very singularly sweeping. There aren't really a lot of Mozart type complexities to it. John Williams likes using yeah. a lot of huge orchestras, you know, the London Symphony Orchestra or the Boston Pops. But with the way that Hans Zimmer approached it, he wanted you to feel this incredibly huge movement through space. And the way to do that is to be able to have these huge surges of the type of, you know, the organ type of. Um, instrumentation that he uses uh, as the backdrop and there's these really dense moments where you're just emotionally rising um, rising with the cinematography rising with the music where your heart's just about to burst because it can't take any more stimulation at that moment especially when they're circling gargantua i mean oh yeah god oh my gosh quite a scene i mean that scene really kind of like just brings it home and you're like wow this has taken me to a cinematic experience that I haven't quite been to before. Now, conversely, I know from reading online that the mix hasn't been as successful in some theaters and more successful in some and nominal in others. So it hasn't been the same experience across the board for everybody. I know that that was a point of contention with fans who liked the content of the movie, but not necessarily the delivery of the soundtrack. Well, that is something that I just seen online, and and apparently some people didn't respond to the sound design of the movie, and there are places in the film where the way that things are layered, Nolan has done it specifically, so you can't always hear the dialogue as clearly as, as we're used to in a film 
And yet he's just playing with things to make it different, more realistic. He's he's definitely experimenting with the way that we view movies and the experience that it is. And obviously playing with the sound of silence in a film because there is no sound in space. So there are points in the film where there's actually no sound whatsoever. It's just the picture or... or um, Something like that. There's there's places, especially you know, I remember when um, Kane's character dies, and it, the last word out of his mouth is is, is kind of mumbled and muffled, but mm. it's done specifically. It, it's a man. He's old. He's dying. It, it, there's right. not. You're not gonna get that last iteration, and it's not even gonna be that Yoda kind of thing where you can understand that last word the way you'd want to be able to because you don't Skate get that chance exactly. Walk. Exactly. Uh, so that's something that uh, I've thought was interesting. And Nolan has, was specific about the way that he designed the sound for the film and the way he wanted it to play out. And he's credited all the theaters he's actually visited. He likes to see his movies in different theaters and get the different experiences. And he says in every one, they've, they've gotten it right. And in some places, he's seen that they've... He, or he's heard that they've played with the sound design and um, not portrayed it the way that he had envisioned it. And so I think that that is something really interesting. Going back to what you were saying, Norm, though, just about Zimmer. Zimmer tends to be a much more atmospheric uh, soundtrack creator. He doesn't mm. really do big grand motif um, themes the way that say a Williams does which makes for you know different types of soundtracks most of the time especially lately he's been even more atmosphere I mean when you think in Batman that there's a, a few just notes that differentiate between when Batman's going to be on screen and when he's not and those moments of high awesome Batman action you get those just it's just a few notes, you know, to let you know. It, but here, I think this that that kind of atmospheric creation of music really works for the film and in helping you live the moment in the way that the best music from the best films does. Well, yeah, the I mean, it's such a dense score. I mean, not in a bad way, but just it's it's creating just another layer to the film. I mean, you look at the, uh, I'm looking at like the track listings right now from the, the soundtrack and, you know, a lot of them are just really basic concepts. You have dust, you know, stay, you know, uh, the wormhole, then uh, you have stay again with periods in between. But, you know, it, it definitely, it, it's a great score. And, and I mean, not to reference everything in this movie to 2001, but I think of that movie, which had these huge operatic classical scores. And, I mean, we've seen a lot of great works, like you said, done in that classical style, you know, Star Wars, you know, the classic Star Trek. Uh, but I think it, it didn't, come across i'm not saying at a different level i'm just saying i think it tied in even more to what this movie was i think than just like a standard sci-fi movie score if that makes sense yeah yeah we were talking about these kind of like the idea of this movie has these great 
brush strokes. Mm. And the score itself has these great brush strokes. Not everything has to be spelled out all the time. Not everything has to be explained to the nth degree. Even in music, and music can do that sometimes, where everything is so perfectly orchestrated to the beat or perfectly orchestrated to the scene. Sometimes things can be projected organically so that you're feeling something that just allows you to emote or allows you to respond to something that Nolan knows he wants to be able to create certain impressions and points in his film where he wants those crescendos to happen at the right time. He does it so deftly and you don't even know that it's happening, but all of the resolution comes when these huge orchestral moments happen and it allows you to surge and allows to release very emotionally charged film. I would say it's almost like you feel the music, you don't hear it. Like you're not consciously mm. hearing, oh, oh, this part is, is, is cool or this part has a good little riff that I kind of, like I can't recall specific themes I mean, again, we've only watched it once, but like I, I can't recall themes of it yet, but I do feel that sense still that I remember from watching it. I'm, I think probably my favorite piece would have to be the, the redocking uh, piece. It just built the tension so much uh, in, in just such a silent, uh, only music way. It it was a part of the movie in a way that I haven't, I think, just seen a score be part of the movie. And the way that the design works with the rest of the sound, that the music is a part of that so much that I, I don't even know if I can explain it. And I just think that's a way of Nolan really experimenting with this film, creating something that is... What I think is um, just a movie masterpiece and will probably be looked at is, is being something that filmmakers look at and study because it's just so well crafted and it's like like we said so many times tonight, it, it's making us think, it, it's making us um, look at movies differently and, and that's what I think that the best films really do and and I'm so glad to see a movie come out like this and I hope that people will respond to it well and I hope that they'll go see it and I hope they'll go see it again because I think that this speaks to the best of what it means to be a, a filmmaker and to aspire to to make people experience and enjoy but also then come away thinking about the world that they live in and and who they are and what it means to be human and and I mean gosh if a movie can do those kind of things it's it's done its job and and to me I couldn't give this a higher mark you know as a film it's it's it will be hard to beat this as my favorite film of the year or at least just I, I think maybe the most important film of the year, if if not this early century. I can't think of a movie that's been um, 
just more breathtaking and, and more bold in what it's trying to do and where it's trying to go and just how it made me feel when I came out of it and, and how I'm still feeling about it and how I want to go see it again. And, you know, they they actually released, uh, you know, you can get an unlimited ticket and go see Interstellar as many times as you want. Uh, I, I, I'm almost tempted to do that if the movie theater that I hadn't gone to was, it was an IMAX one. It was it's about 20 miles away. So, you know, if it wasn't that far away, I, I, I might actually do that because I'd, I'd love to see this more. Um, and so for me, it, it's just, it's that kind of film. It's very important. Um, for you guys, what are your, your just kind of final thoughts on Interstellar? Well, for me, I think it represented what we all love about Star Trek and what we all believe was Roddenberry's vision for humanity. I know it's coming from a different tract because it was, you know, in, in Roddenberry's universe, it was the world wars and almost the our own negligence of our own needs as a, as a species that would, that would b- basically bring us all together and create the United Federation of Planets and Starfleet to go out there and explore. This was by no fault of our own in Interstellar. This blight came and it forced us to take a stand and and reach out there to this this basically is almost like a galactic calling card, which is this wormhole that kind of just popped up and allowed us to explore. But it, it does really hearken and resonate to me as a Star Trek fan, because I love enterprise as a Star Trek fan. And I believe that this to me was almost like enterprise year zero where Starfleet, this is where Starfleet started. Starfleet started as a catalyst of, all of these great minds coming together to explore. And for me, the way that they treated this movie was in some sense, the way I would like to see a Star Trek movie treated with the kind of reverence and the kind of gravitas that you bring to exploring the unknown with the focus on why we're doing this, because it is in humanity's interest to survive but it's also in humanity's interest to explore and being able to have those two reconcile themselves with perfect balance allows us to be able to go out there in space and help forge the future that we believe is right for us. Those terms alone are what interstellar is bringing out of me as a viewer, the possibility for us to be able to go out there and help humanity survive. Not necessarily on Earth, because that's what they said in Interstellar. Man was born here, but we're not necessarily supposed to die here. So it allows us to go forward, and it allows us to explore these great scientific, philosophical, spiritual, racial, religious, emotional tracks that we've never really explored in one three-hour instance of watching a film. It really does hit a lot of very human parts of us in so many different ways, which is why I think there are so many different responses to this film. Yeah, when I first went to uh, to university, I was actually a film major, so I, you know, 
just love all sorts of different types of film. And, and one of the things I love about film is just you can get such a variety. You have your your action comedies, your 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 B movie sci fi and your Schindler's List and your Star Wars and all this great stuff and and one doesn't diminish the other. And that's what I think is nice that you can have, you know, I'd say the antithesis of this movie would probably be Galaxy Quest. Where it's just it's just, you know, nothing is explained and everything is fun. But then, you know, movies like this are are rare and and it takes a bit of thought to kind of and it takes a little bit of thought to, to wrap your head around at times, but if you can, it's it's worth it for the ride because it explores these these huge concepts, but it's just an enjoyable ride. You have this beautiful score. You have this amazing cast that did really well. Uh, you have great robots that are acted and, and performed convincingly. Uh, beautiful spacecraft that you know that behave to the laws of physics. <laughs> so you know all these great things to say. Uh, you know. Am I going to pop in a three-hour movie once I own this at home? I'm going to have to definitely carve out the time, but it's worth it. You know, I definitely see this as being a film I want to buy. I want it in Blu-ray. I want it as beautiful as I can see it on a biggest screen as possible. And I want to analyze it. I want to, you know, go to my favorite scenes and watch it all the way through and, and you know, try to pick up extra pieces that only one viewer doesn't give you. I, you know, I want to rewatch and, and look for the subtlety of Matt Damon's acting once he comes out of cryosleep and how he's, you know, is he dropping hints even before then, you know, as at, at, at where he's going in this. You know, I want to watch Kip. I want to see his face, you know, as he's been dismantled. I mean, that thing right there, that, that told me that man was bad right there because we saw how useful these robots were and yours is disassembled on the floor. So what exactly happened here? Uh, but there's just all these beautiful elements. I mean, we've, we've said it several times. You know, Christopher Nolan is just it is an amazing storyteller. And whatever he puts his hand to, he, he's able to tell a great story. And, and it's no different in the interstellar. Well, guys, it has been fantastic. Um, I'd, I'd even venture to say out of this world talking interstellar with y'all tonight. But it's not the only thing that we've been talking about here on Trek FM this past week. So here's a quick look at some of the other things you may have missed elsewhere on the network. Previously on Trek.fm, Standard Orbit. But instead of it being a human being prejudiced against Vulcans because the Romulans look like Vulcans, the Vulcans are taking advantage of themselves looking like Romulans in order to be racist against Romulans. Earl Grey. So he's got the two armrests, and the right one says little, you know, Ensign, you know, Lamont, and the little arrow, <laughs> and then the one on the on the left says Lieutenant Commander Data. <laughs> like a little arrow. The orb. But when they pull away from that window with Jake and Kira, and they pull away from the station, it's like they're closing the book. They're, they're actually closing the back cover of the book, and it's the end of the story. To the journey! How do you feel, Char, about the Borg Queen? Oh boy. I think the longer that I have watched Star Trek, the more I'm in the camp of, I don't know if I like her. The Ready Room. They want you to come across on Archer's side where he can be mad at Trip, but I have a really hard time being 
Archer being mad at Trip because just think of if we still treated, you know, people of a different race like this. Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. That can honestly be the reason they brought Wesley, because Wesley's got nothing else going for him there. I mean, yes, he can lead those kids, but that's just going to be by virtue of his age. Mm-hmm. Right? I mean, he's 15 years old. Of course, all the other kids are going to look up to him, at least for a while. And then if he ends up being a total tool, then they won't. Commentary, Trek stars. Yeah, yeah well, the learning we curve was never meant to be a season one finale. They were going to do the 37s, and then UPN wanted to open season two with it, and that totally didn't work either. Man, you got you to gotta say, UPN really ooped it up. Literary treks. What Jerry Taylor talks about with Catherine Janeway's life is it's kind of a series of her relationships. I mean, she should be doing all sorts of fantastic things, right? And instead, we're learning about her boyfriends. Melodic treks. But there's a whole host of, of people that appear in Star Trek. As I said, most of it is classic courses for the Vivaldi, Strauss, Trojkotsky, um, Harry Kim. The 602 Club. This really does have an impact on, I think, the entire you know, comic book world. Dark Knight, Dark Knight Returns still have a huge impact in the way that people view Batman today. And that's what else is happening on Trek.fm. So check out these shows and find out what we've been talking about in your favorite corner of the Star Trek universe. And of course, now beyond. You'll find us wherever you get your podcasts. And guys, if you're an Apple user, be sure to hit that subscribe button. It really helps us out greatly, and it makes it easier for the other listeners to find our shows as they search for us on iTunes. And if you're not an Apple user, we've got you covered as well. You can find our shows on Stitcher, TuneIn, Spreaker, SoundCloud, Windows Phone, and of course, you can stream and download the MP3 from our website and grab the RSS link as well. Now, guys, where can we find y'all online? Let everybody know. Darren, where can we find you? You can find me uh, on my personal website, which is drsci-fi.com. But for the ease of communication, that's also my Twitter handle. So D-R-S-C-I-F-I on Twitter is the best way to continue this conversation about Interstellar or Star Trek in general or pretty much any science fiction, as the name implies. Oh, you clever boy. <laughs> and of course, you're also on the show Earl Grey. That's true. That's right. Daniel you know, we've been talking for so Phil long, Gilfus. I've forgotten right. my other co-hosts. Uh, you know, it, uh, we won't tell them. It, you know, <laughs> one year of podcast recording is equal to 30 years of uh, real-time editing, uh, as I as There I you well go. <laughs> so, but no, yes, you can definitely also hear me on a show on the network. We have Earl Grey, where we talk exclusively about uh, Star Trek The Next Generation. We've been having a lot of really fun topics lately, and it's always great talking with Philip and Daniel every week. So listen to us here on Trek FM. And Norm, where can we find you? Well, you can always find me on Twitter and Facebook at Norman Lau. That's N-O-R-M-A-N-L-A-O. And many of you already know that I'm a huge supporter of Alec Peters and the Star Trek Axanar project. And you can find me on the Axanar fan group page on Facebook. But I always love saying this. I am a proud sponsor of Trek FM through Patreon We've discussed how to find Patreon online. That's patreon.com slash trekfm. And I am an associate producer for Warp 5, The Orb, here at the 602 Club, and Star Trek Axanar, the official Axanar podcast. 
Well, guys, uh, it's it's been fantastic having you here. And then, of course, as Norm said, another way that you can help support us each week, having all of these shows come to you is on Patreon. And you can become a patron of the network on Patreon. If you visit patreon.com slash trekfm, that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash trekfm, you'll find our current goals and the different milestone contribution levels, along with all the great perks that we have for you. These perks include early access to content, exclusive content, producer credits like Norm has here on the 602 and other shows. You can get a seat on our content development team and more. Guys, we so appreciate any support that you can give us, and we really do hope that you'll join the team. Again, you can find all the details at patreon.com slash trekfm. Don't forget to give us an iTunes review. When you get a chance, just head over to iTunes, give us a star rating and a written review. That's fantastic if you do, and we'll definitely mention you on the show as well. You can contact us at trek.fm slash content. Just choose a show. It'll send an email directly to us, so you can contact us that way. You can also send us a voicemail. Just look in the sidebar on the show page or go to speakpipe.com slash trek.fm. We're on Twitter at trek.fm. We're also on Facebook at facebook.com slash trek.fm. And of course, you can also find us in the Babel Conference. That's our listeners-only message room. We have great conversations there. Just type the Babel Conference, that's B-A-B-E-L, into the search field on Facebook. Or you can do it the easy way. Just go to the website at trek.fm and click discussion on the menu bar. Before we go, we'd like to ask everyone to please support our sponsor who helps bring the 602 Club and all of our shows to you each week. Our sponsor for the show, of course, is Audible.com. Audible is the best way for you to read all of those books that you don't have time for and you always wanted to read. And as a Trek FM listener, you can get a free audiobook of your choice along with a 30-day trial just to see how great Audible is. Just go to audibletrial.com slash trekfm and sign up today. Again, that's audibletrial.com slash trekfm. And we thank Audible for supporting the 602 Club and the network. And don't forget to check out Enterprise in Space, a project of the nonprofit National Space Society that will design and launch an 8-foot orbiter and return the craft to Earth. The NSS Enterprise Orbiter will carry more than 100 student-designed science experiments into space, and you can help make that happen. Visit enterpriseinspace.org to find out more and get your seat on the mission. And of course, guys, you can find me on Twitter at MattRushing02. You can also find me doing a couple other shows here with my co-host Christopher Jones. We do The Orb where we talk about Deep Space Nine all the time. We also have Literary Treks where we talk about the books and comics of Star Trek. And I have my own personal blog at 42lifeinbetween.wordpress.com where I actually even have my own review up of the movie that we talked about in this episode. And so I hope you'll join me there. Guys, thank you so much for joining me. And y'all come back now, you hear? 